Welcome to the Financial Futurist Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Schenker, the Financial Futurist. Bloomberg News ranks me one of the top financial forecasters in the world in my role as the president of Prestige Economics. I'm also the chairman of the Futurist Institute. And on this podcast, we talk about markets, business, and future technology. This is the Financial Futurist Podcast. This week on the Financial Futurist Podcast, we'll talk about inflation, housing, retail sales, the Fed, and the future of trade. We'll cover these subjects and more on this week's episode of the Financial Futurist Podcast. Last week, there was a lot of different economic data released in the United States, and the data was mixed. On the upside for growth, industrial production was strong, but on the downside, total retail sales fell for a third consecutive month as both producer and consumer inflation continued to rise. Core producer price index, which excludes food, energy, and trade services, was at an all-time high for year-over-year inflationary pressures. Meanwhile, total CPI continued to rise as well. Now, all of these inflation rates are below 3%. In fact, core CPI remains at only 1.8%, but they've all been rising. And you'd think, given the impact of inflation reports in February, that this kind of data would be supportive for the dollar. And yet, the dollar fell slightly last week. The reason was that even though inflationary pressures have increased, and the Fed is likely to raise rates this week by 25 basis points in its decision on March 21st, there's one big fundamental problem that held back the greenback, and that's weak economic data. Although industrial production data was strong last week, housing starts and building permits were absolutely clobbered for the month of February, falling very hard, well below consensus, and actually close to our own below consensus forecasts, at the same time that retail sales fell for a third consecutive month. Now, retail sales is being held back by auto sales, which have taken a hit in recent months, but it's not just autos that have fallen. A number of other categories of retail sales have also been declining, and a three-month trend of declines in retail sales is not a good sign when you consider that consumption is over 70% of the U.S. economy. If there's no consumption, there's no growth. And while the Atlanta Fed had been forecasting that first quarter GDP was going to be around 5.4% just about six weeks ago, their forecast for Q1 GDP has now fallen to only 1.8%. And that's a massive drop, right, from 5.4 to 1.8. And that's because housing has slowed and auto sales have slowed. We highlighted these two areas for risks, especially in a higher interest rate environment in our annual report, and we've been reiterating this in recent reports as well, our monthlies, our weeklies, and special reports. The truth is, is that housing and autos are driven by interest rates and interest rates are going up. The labor market's tight, wage inflation is a problem. Wage inflation is rising. Other types of inflation are rising. The Fed fund rates are rising, and that makes money more expensive. Plus, the Fed's reducing the size of its balance sheet by reducing its purchases, which makes interest rates risk rising further. And the tax cuts that were passed at the end of 2017 also were not balanced and require a deficit. And that deficit has to be financed with more debt. And more debt means more supply of bonds to sell at a time when the 
Fed is buying less, so you've got more supply and less demand. You don't need to be an economist that this would send prices lower, right? You got more supply of debt, less demand for it. In other words, you've got both more sellers and fewer buyers. That's not good in any market, and that makes bond prices fall, which have an inverse relationship with bond yields or bond interest rates. And so bond rates are likely to rise further from where they've risen so far this year. Those interest rate relationships have direct impacts on auto purchases and home purchases, and we're likely to see that play out throughout the rest of the year and likely more significantly late in the year and next year. Because if inflation's a risk, the Fed's likely to continue to raise rates even at a modest pace as long as growth remains positive and the labor market doesn't collapse. That means that the Fed's likely to show some tolerance for a slowing in the labor market and slowing in economic growth as long as it also slows inflation. This means that corporate profits are also likely to fall because the cost of labor has gone up, the cost of capital is going up, and because global growth is strong, commodity prices have gone up, and of course now with tariffs, there's a risk that other raw materials prices go up as well. So companies are facing all these increased costs, labor, capital, materials, higher costs means lower profit margins. Additionally, productivity for the fourth quarter of 2017 was flat. Normally, you want to see that productivity is going up because workers are producing more, but recent data actually shows that they're not. And if productivity begins to fall, the labor market will loosen up. In other words, employers will begin to reduce their payroll size. They will begin laying off people. So this is kind of the set of inflection points going on right now, which is why equity markets took a hit last week. Now, the NASDAQ had been at an all-time record high after the jobs report on March 9th. And that fell last week, but remains relatively supported. But against the dynamics of the NASDAQ, the Dow, which is perceived to be more exposed to tariffs and trade, has shown a converging pattern of higher lows, but lower highs. That pattern remains unbroken. Prices are converging with moving averages, and this convergence is likely to force a breakout. Breakouts tend to be significant moves away after you see prices kind of in a triangle formation, given the risk of retaliatory tariffs from foreign countries and these other dynamics of higher interest rates, higher labor costs, higher materials costs, a breakout could very well be to the downside. This is why there's a risk of both Fed rate hikes to counter inflation, but also potentially lower equity prices because growth appears to be slowing and profitability more than growth faces downside risks. I'm Jason Schenker, and you're listening to the Financial Futurist Podcast. In the Futurist portion of the Financial Futurist podcast, I want to take a couple minutes here to talk about the future of trade. The tariff proclamations from the United States that levied tariffs on steel and aluminum risk triggering repercussions. Now, while I've discussed this and the strategic national security arguments behind the 232 report that the Commerce Department produced, as well as the tariffs on steel and aluminum, I want to discuss the implications of tariffs in general, because so far we haven't seen any repercussions. Of course, the tariffs have been proclaimed. And as we see them implemented, I believe we will see repercussions. We will see other countries, especially China, potentially punch back. Now, the most important part of the proclamations of U.S. tariffs on aluminum and steel is that Canada and Mexico have been excluded. NAFTA remains excluded from this and is intact. Of course, NAFTA is currently going through a negotiation process and there are a few sticking points. There are actually four major challenges with the renegotiation 
depreciation of NAFTA, the rules of origin, seasonality, investor state dispute settlement, and a sunset clause. So the rules of origin are used to determine the country of origin of a product for purposes of international trade, and each NAFTA country retains its external tariffs with non-members' goods and levies a lower or no tariff on the goods originating from the other NAFTA members. Under NAFTA, currently, at least 62.5% of the material in autos, for example, that are made in the region must be from North America to be able to enter the marketplace tariff-free. So that means whatever goes into a car, 62.5% of material in that car must come from the different countries in NAFTA. Now, the Trump administration has proposed raising the amount of NAFTA content in autos to 85% and trying to secure 50% of the total for the United States. This stems from the administration's desire to ensure the NAFTA benefits are not extended to goods imported from non-NAFTA countries, which have undergone only minimal processing in North America. Now, the numbers here are all up for debate, but the purpose here is to try to preserve and strengthen as much activity among the members as possible. Of course, the administration's desire to get 50% of the total in the United States is going to be quite high, but there might be more traction eventually with the higher percentage number overall for autos and other goods manufactured in the NAFTA region. That's not the stickiest of the major challenges, but it is one that's still getting pushback. The next major challenge is seasonality. For example, this would impact agricultural pricing, which would change depending on the season to potentially restrain Mexican exports on fresh produce. Now, Mexico's indicated that this addition to the agreement would be unacceptable and not permissible under WTO rules. Like tariffs on steel, the idea of seasonality would likely have repercussions from Mexico and Canada. The third major challenge is the investor state dispute settlement. Now, this is a system through which investors can sue countries for alleged discriminatory practices. It's an instrument of public international law and provisions are contained in NAFTA in Chapter 11. Lawsuits are brought before international arbitration panels that operate under rules similar to those used for the resolution of international commercial disputes, and the administration has called for dropping investor state dispute settlements, except for cases where an investor's property has been seized by another country. The administration's position is that investor state dispute settlements are an insurance policy for companies to make a return on their investment, and they continue to state that without the recourse ISTS provides to companies overseas, firms could be more inclined to invest in the U.S. rather than being given an incentive to invest abroad. Now, the risk of removing the investor state dispute settlement is that this current fairly transparent process could negatively affect American companies, especially small and mid-sized companies, and their ability to challenge probable illegal behavior by foreign companies of Mexico or Canada. And the fourth major challenge, and this is the biggest probably of the sticking points, is that some current discussions have revolved around establishing a review every five years of NAFTA to propose changes based on issues or new technologies that have entered the market. And a regular review does have advantages and would assist with addressing changing rules and technologies, but the U.S. had initially asked for a sunset clause that would automatically terminate NAFTA every five years unless all three countries agree to extend the deal. This kind of a sudden death proposal is unacceptable for Mexico and Canada and is likely to be a really big problem if it's pushed forward further. As you can see, there are a few big sticking points here. The 
opportunities, dynamics around the rules of origin, potential seasonality pricing and impacts, as well as the push to drop the investor state dispute settlement and the U.S. push for a sunset clause. These are the biggest challenges with the renegotiation, and it's really important from a trade standpoint for the U.S. economy, as well as for Mexico and Canada, that NAFTA not fail. In a renegotiation process, the view really should be to first do no harm. NAFTA has been extremely beneficial to the U.S. economy as well to the Canadian and Mexican economies. NAFTA has driven U.S. trade with Mexico and Canada to $1.3 trillion in 2017 from just $290 billion in 1993. So there's been an entire extra trillion dollars of trade that's happened on an annual basis because of NAFTA. Now, the impact on the United States is also varied by state. If you have any questions on this, I'm happy to share some links to some articles on this because hundreds of thousands of jobs or more are at risk in a number of states. In, in Texas, for example, a million jobs depend on free trade with our NAFTA partners. And nationally, 6 million jobs are tied to trade with Mexico and 8 million are tied to trade with Canada. So 14 million jobs in the United States depend on NAFTA. And Canadians and Mexicans buy half a trillion dollars worth of U.S. manufactured goods every year. In total, trade of goods among NAFTA partners accounts for almost a quarter of all U.S. trade. Making critical changes to NAFTA to allow for an update that reflects the opportunities and challenges of the 21st century makes a lot of sense. There are areas such as energy, online commerce, and financial services that all need to be addressed and modernized in a NAFTA 2.0 framework. And there's a need for a more transparent system for intellectual property. All of these could be incorporated into a modernization of NAFTA, but it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The financial market's negative responses to the U.S. proclamation of tariffs on steel and aluminum, for which NAFTA countries have been excluded, should offer a preview of just how bad things could be if NAFTA were to fall apart. A quarter of our trade, 14 million jobs, and a trillion dollars are at stake. This is part of the reason that I'll be traveling this week to Washington, D.C., personally meet with Senators Cornyn, Cruz, and Hatch, as well as congressmen from both parties for the state of Texas, the Mexican ambassador, and Trump administration officials as part of an initiative in defense of NAFTA. This is being organized by the Texas Business Leadership Council, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit business roundtable for the state of Texas. It's comprised of 100 CEOs in the state who advise our elected leadership. I've been a member since January of 2014. I've been one of those 100 CEOs for over four years. And although most economists don't head up to D.C. on these kinds of issues, I'm more than an economist, I'm a futurist, and I'm an entrepreneur who cares very deeply about what happens to the U.S. economy. I'll follow up with everyone next week on some thoughts about how the trip went, what I expect the prospects for NAFTA are, but it's my belief that the future of NAFTA is not yet set in stone. If I thought everything was going to be all right and there was nothing to worry about, I wouldn't be going to D.C. for these kinds of meetings. But I'm concerned, which is why I am going. If you have any additional questions, please feel free to reach out to me either by email jasonschenker at prestigeeconomics.com or send me a note on LinkedIn. People talk about companies being too big to fail. That's just not true. Even big companies can fail. And the same is true of trade deals. With a trillion dollars annually on the line and the negotiation process having not gone well, everything is up in the air, especially after the most recent trade proclamations on steel and aluminum. And while no trade deal is too big to fail, this 
be a very expensive failure indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Futurist Podcast with me, Jason Schenker, the Financial Futurist. You can follow me on Twitter at Prestige Econ and check out my website, jasonschenker.com. On jasonschenker.com, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter to make sure you're getting the latest and most important information about markets, business, and future technology. Until next week.